Bring me your tired, your stressed, your overwhelmed and anxious, yearning for some joy in life. It's time to go out and play. Welcome back to Playgrounding after a long winter break. Um, it's been a little while. Today we're going to start off um, sort of a new year here, 2021 on Playgrounding, with something a little different. Um, today we're going to have a conversation with Gary Ware from Breakthrough Play. Um, only this time he is interviewing me. Yeah, you can hear our interview a couple episodes back. I'll be sure to link it to the show notes. But this time he is going to be interviewing me. Um, and here's why. Over the years, playgrounding has been, for me, just a place where I am a facilitator of conversations. And I love that. I've learned so much. Um, my goal has been to elevate other people's voices on play because I really didn't have one of my own. I just wanted to learn about it. Um, but since I've been doing all this work at All Paths, it's where I'm getting my interfaith ordination, I'm starting to realize just how perfectly my work in play and my work, my future, um, as an all, all paths interfaith minister, they go together in so many ways. And as all of this has taken on deeper and deeper significance for me, I'm starting to realize that I do have my own story and I do have my own voice. The problem is that it's just a really difficult story to tell. So I've had, I've tiptoed around it. I've hinted at it here and there, but I've never really actually told it. So I talked to a few fellow play enthusiasts a few weeks ago and we were talking about it and I said, you know, I don't really know what to do. I've never really shared my own story on playgrounding, but I was actually starting to share it in other places. I've, I've uh, been interviewed as a speaker for the upcoming Playful Creative Summit. Um, you'll be hearing a lot more about that. And also on the Playful Humans podcast. So I'm out there kind of like seeing what it's like to tell the story, but I've been so nervous about how to really share it with you, like just all of it. So Gary on this call said, Hey, why don't I interview you? And I was so overwhelmed and honored that he would even offer. And um, at one point in my life, I probably would have just run and hid under a rock instead of saying yes. But that's part of the story too, is that I said, thank you. That would be wonderful. That would be beyond wonderful. So here we are. And this is what is going to happen today. It's all very new for me. Um, so it's all really scary, but let's get on to the show. Um, but right before the interview, Gary actually has an announcement about a challenge that he would like you to participate in. I have already signed up. It's called the Playful Rebellion Challenge, and it's free with a coupon code that you are about to receive. Um, so yeah, and you will also find a link to this on your show notes as well. So here's Gary. He's going to tell you all about the Playful Rebellion Challenge and then the interview. <sighs> See you on the other side. So um, it's one of those things that uh, as an adult, we and this is going to tie in perfect with your interview that mm -hmm. we lose our mm -hmm. and we we try so hard to fit into a box or we try so hard to be liked um and you know we we go through our whole life like that and mm -hmm. especially at work uh, yes. regardless if you work for someone or for yourself work remotely or work in an office you know we have these ways of being of like oh we have to, you know, we have to show up to work like this. We have to do all this, that, and the other. And it's, I feel like work is not working. 
the way that we currently work, all no. that stuff is not working. And, you know, being someone who studies play and, 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 you know, inherently playful himself, I still get into it. Like I, I find myself resort, uh, like resorting back to the, the way we have to be. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like the only answer is to rebel. Mm-hmm. Um, and is mm. to rebel against the status quo and and i'm inviting people to join the rebellion and <laughs> my challenge is a 30-day challenge it's called the playful rebellion challenge and across 30 days it's all about learning the virtues of playful people and there are four key virtues that we're going to um in those 30 days and that's commit to joy um activate power-ups acceptance of reality and seek out invitations to play Ugh. and those are the virtues that uh, practice those you can you know you can be more playful and and that is like my my hope is that at the end of the 30 days you can be more self because you are um you know reaping all the benefits of play so that's what it is and so um this is my first foray into this. So I want as many people from all walks of life to participate in it so I can get feedback um, to make it better. And Mm -hmm. um, if you're listening and you're like, yes, I need this, um, we'll make sure that you have the link to it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, breakthroughplay.com slash playful rebellion will go to it. But there's a code challenge 100 will allow you to do it for free because I want people to do it i want people to do it within community so that we can support each other and that is that is the challenge it's challenge 100 that's the challenge code. 100 to get 100 percent off this awesome. is going to be like this is the cheat code the cheat code <laughs> to to this game and it's a gamified so everything is a game in this is a game there are points but at the end of the day, we're all going to be winners. It sounds cheesy, but we're all going to be winners at the end of the day. But it, it is gamified. We are we are playing, teaching ourselves how to play more. I love it. I can't wait. I've been wanting to do something like this for a while. <laughs> so thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Now on to the scary interview. Yay! So, Kara, how are you doing? Welcome <laughs> to your show. <laughs> I am super nervous, but excited. This is very out of the ordinary and wonderful. <laughs> you know what? It is. It. I, I feel you. I hear you. <laughs> and, and just know <laughs> that um, it, it's my hope uh, because as an improviser, it, you know, yes. one of the rules of improv is to make your partner look amazing. And that is my hope for you. To give you space to tell this story, um, <laughs> which I know is going to help so many people uh, because Ooh. in in getting a glimpse of the story, I was like, oh, I know exactly who needs to hear this when this comes mm-hmm. out. So let's get started from the beginning. If we can go oh, back. Back in time. Uh, give us a glimpse of who was Kara? <laughs> well, there have been many versions of me. Um, I, I'm a preacher's kid, and that means that I am very adaptable. I, like a lot of politicians, kids, you know, we have to make sure that we don't do anything wrong. I heard of kids who like a guy who got his girlfriend pregnant and his dad was fired and things like that. And so I was just always really afraid because I really loved my dad and I really look up to my dad to this day. And I just 
as a kid, that was his whole world. He was a preacher since he was 18 and I wasn't going to do anything to mess that up, you know? Um, and so I think I kind of a, became very adaptable. I had fun, but especially as you become a teenager, it just, everybody is in that mode at some point or another in adolescence. But I, I always had kind of a different me depending on when it was and who I was around and, you know. Yeah. Um, and so adaptability, mm -hmm. uh, I, that's such a strong word. I, I, I love that word choice. Can you think of a story where you had to be adaptable, especially being a child of a, of a preacher? Mm. I had to be adaptable. Um, oh, man. Well, it, it's weird because I this is the first thing that came into my mind is like might sound a little controversial to some people, but I was just talking today with a friend of mine about how, when I was little, my dad and I walked up to the steps of the church on a Sunday morning and we were ready to go in and we found a stack of like little newspapers on the front porch. And I, you know, we were, he was getting ready to unlock the door and then he stopped and he gave me a little stack and he took a stack. And as we're walking, I'm like, where are we going? We're going to the dumpster. We're going to throw these away. He's all, these are voter guides. And we don't, we, we don't put these in church because this is politics and we're not supposed to be doing this. And I remember just as a kid that made a huge impact on me, but then realizing even within that same day, I mean, it was a huge moment for me as a kid. Cause it was just like, this is, it says it's a Christian voter guy. We don't do this, you know, that kind of thing. And I just remember I, we both were adaptable because we never said that out loud much. Only if someone ever asked. And I think like that is an example of adaptability that I was so used to that it just became like breathing that you can believe things, you can think certain ways, but just don't ever get too loud about it. You know, <laughs> um, makes sense. Yeah. So it's almost like you were straddling <laughs> different <laughs> sort of things like, all right, I have to be this way and I have to be this way and I have to be this way and I have to be this way. Yeah. Um, and, and from what I'm hearing, that was just the norm, right? You didn't think anything oh, yeah. of it, right? No, no. I was like, our church had a manual with like rules outside, like more, more rules than were in the Bible kind of thing. And um, there were lots of rules. Some of them were like, don't play cards, don't go to movies, don't ever go to dances, you know, just things like that. And I just remember, you know, we'd play cards, but I was playing Uno and not the other kind, or I'd go to the dance, but my mom would be like, just don't mention it at church. If somebody asks you, don't lie. And I just kind of got used to that way of, of living. Um, yeah. Adaptability. Okay. I, <laughs> I could I be discerning it. in my own life, but I was always afraid that if something that I decided was okay for me, I shouldn't set an example of it for someone else. Cause in case it's not okay for them. Like if to me that looking back on that, I feel like it just makes it me, it's me and infantilizing somebody like, Oh, well, I, you know, I may be able to do it, but maybe you can't. Um, but it's just one of those things where you just learn how to, pretend a lot yeah and well that actually brings me to the next question is um <laughs> what sort of superpowers did you gain from mm. that because i feel like everything teaches us something yeah Ooh, uh, i think that my capacity to read other people became ridiculous like i knew every like i could look at someone in their face and know how i was supposed to act for them i think a lot of codependent people understand this really well um and i and it also helped me in in my later years as a marketer where everything i wrote growing up like if i was writing a note to a friend in class 
or to a boyfriend or something. I'd write it and then I'd read it and I'd pretend I was him and like, oh, yeah, he's going to like, wait, but what if his mom reads it? Read it again. Oh, I don't know. And then I'd rewrite it. What if my mom finds it? Like, and, and like, I just, what if the teacher finds it? And I would reread it until I get to the version that is just right. And that's great when you're a marketer. I was really good at like multiple audiences and stuff like that. Um, but it's not really a great way to like go through life. <laughs> Sounds exhausting. Was it, it was. It was okay. exhausting, but I'm but I am really good at it. And and the thing that's broken my heart this whole time with playgrounding is I've never been able to really feel like I'm talking to I feel like there's been this big disconnect between me as a person wanting to talk about these subjects and me as a person being able to really connect with anyone who's listening to me or anything like that because I've never really felt like I was free to be myself. And as I became more and more aware of all these things actually causing major mental health problems over the last you know decade or so, I don't know. It just it's made me sad because the one audience I really care about is this one is playgrounding. But I feel like I've just kind of had to hide most of who I am, just like I have with everybody else, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that brings me to my next question is, <laughs> so you are the daughter of a preacher's kid mm -hmm. and you grew up being very adaptable and mm -hmm. and. And maybe that's where like the identity, like you have both of identities, which is great. Oh yeah, uh, I call oh, it yeah. being a social chameleon. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, so, what was your trajectory? What did you like? What did you want? Would you aspire to be? And you know, take us through that. Ooh. Well, I I wanted to follow my father's footsteps. I really, really wanted to be a preacher, and I would have been third generation. My you know grandfather, my father, and. I was an only child and a girl. So that was weird because our church didn't really do that, you know, have female ministers. So when I was 17 and said, I feel like it's a call to ministry with to me, what that felt like and meant for me was my dad, you know, he would go to Harry's house once a week and cut his toenails. He was like this really, really old man that in our, from our church's neighborhood. And I know that, you know, no one out there is going to know who he is. I don't care, but he's like really precious to me. Um, he would go and just have lunch with him. He would, he would always be able to talk to people and always be able to help people. You know, he was always, he was a total introvert, but he, so he wasn't out there being like the car salesman preacher, but he would get in the pulpit and he would be this great teacher. And just, he was so good at communicating. And I think I just wanted to follow in his footsteps. And, um, the problem was that for most of my life, I didn't really know what that meant. And my eye wasn't as much on the ball of who do I want to be served? Who do I want to serve? As much as it was, they're not going to let me do it because I'm a girl. I spent probably my whole 20s fighting that fight. Seminary also a little bit, even though, you know, it was the 90s when I got started with all of this. And it just so so the the, the it took a different shapes at different times in my life. Um, but. So, so while I might have had this very simple idea for what I wanted to do with my life, you know, lots of people become pastors. I felt like I had to be perfect. And I do come from a church that is part of the holiness tradition, which there is a thing called Christian perfection and it's complicated. But when you use the word perfection, it's, I'm sorry, it's just, <laughs> it's an overwhelming word, especially to use in a, in a religious context. And yeah. when I got married at 19, and moved to a very, very, very conservative town to a very fundamentalist church. They wanted me not to be a pastor. They wanted my husband to get a hold of me and take, you know, get me under control. And for me to leave that man meant leaving that church and 
experience what it's like to actually be shunned, like really shunned, having somebody spit in your face shunned. And, you know, I was young. I was only like 22, 23. I hadn't even graduated college yet. But I, I felt like now I'm never going to be able to be a pastor. I'm divorced. It's like the Scarlet D. Like that was the first thing. And then other things happened later in my life that even when I'd start to feel like I could, um, I experienced sexual assault um, three different times. And the first two happened long enough before the third. But during those times, like a, a lot of women, because of purity culture, which is a part of which was a huge part of the evangelical world, especially in youth groups around the time I was growing up, was that a lot of women who grew up in purity culture, if they were if they were sexually assaulted, if they were raped, it's they didn't go through the same process that a lot of other people might where you automatically see it as a bad. And I know this is not just something that happens because of purity culture, but it's it's a matter of kind of taking it upon yourself to punish yourself, to see it in this really horrible, dirty way, because part of the message you receive is that you'll never be clean again if you make a mistake. Well, it therefore seems logical to say that, well, this thing happened. I'm now dirty. However it happened, I'm not clean anymore. And so just this, this sort of downward spiral, and, and I've, I'm oversimplifying, but it, it, it was years of my life. It was a lot of self-hatred. It was a lot of acting out, feeling hopeless, feeling like, what's the point? And the first, first two happened before I went to seminary. And I finally did go to seminary because I didn't want anyone to know why I didn't think I could be a pastor. <laughs> So, of course, I didn't want to talk yeah. about it, but I talked about going to seminary forever. And finally, I was like, fine, OK, I'm going to go. And then the third one happened while I was at seminary. And I was just like, oh, brother, <laughs> you know, I could and I, I never wanted to. I never felt like I could talk about it or explain it. And even after Me Too, I I was more ang I was more anxious during Me Too because all these people were talking so openly about the stuff that I'd been working so hard to hide and had all these yeah. religious reasons around it. Um so me wanting to do something, I mean, it's like the whole idea of who I wanted to serve and what my call was and how I wanted to be a pastor, that all just went way to the wayside and became all about, no, you can't because you're a woman. No, you can't because you're divorced. And then things that I decided, well, if I can't because I'm divorced and I definitely can't now because of these other things that have happened, um, which I didn't want anyone to know about because then who knows if I was already shunned once, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it makes no sense now to talk about it like this, but it, at the times during those times, it was, it felt real. It felt like, yeah. Yeah. It was real. <laughs> it was real yeah. to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm. And, um, I, I just want to take a moment, moment and acknowledge you, you know, thank you so much for being so open and sharing. And I can <sighs> only imagine in the moment, like, how that must have felt, especially having these ideals and these things to live up to mm -hmm. and not reaching that. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. And, and, and how, you know, you, you know, just <laughs> what you're placing on yourself, like, yeah, that's mm -hmm. a lot. It's, you know, uh, so, you know, thank you for that. You know, thank you for sharing. And I know the person <sighs> listening to listening to this uh, is probably getting some solace knowing that they're not alone. Um, My hands are sweating so bad right now. <laughs> and she, I just, I, this is so weird to talk about it, but it's like, you know what? It's such a huge part of why I'm here doing what I'm doing right now. So yes, here we go. Well, one thing before we get back to your story, um, <laughs> it, it reminds me of like, no wonder, like, I feel like you like felt like all bottled up and whatnot. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, our mutual friend, Jeff Harry, yeah. talks about um, uh, perfection uh, is the thing that keeps people from playing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the barrier to play is perfection. Because Absolutely. when you are trying to be perfect, mm-hmm. you essentially, you even said it, you didn't feel like you were being yourself. So mm-hmm. like you're trying to be someone else. Um, mm-hmm. And in that, in my opinion, feel like there's a lot of stress uh, oh, with yeah. that. And so since you know you do have you know since playgrounding is your your thing and like i felt like maybe <laughs> like you were called to do this as a healing thing for yourself but i would yeah. like to you know in that moment like when you were going through all that stuff mm-hmm. um like what was the outward sort of personality like were you like playful or um what were you sort of like sort of hiding that and then on the inside you were saying other stuff like I, i'm curious on was it even noticeable to the outside person um, the one thing I did notice, I've been doing a lot of work with this, the, the school that I'm going to right now for interfaith, uh, to become an interfaith chaplain. And they're, they're having me do a lot of work on this. And I noticed that at a cert- earlier in my life, I was very, I was much more ego driven. I was, I was a, you know, a firecracker. I was one of those types who just, you know, you know, tell me I can't be a preacher cause I'm a girl. I'm going to write all these papers and you're never going to be able to say no to the, and, and at some point it all just went away and I became a boundaryless pile of goo. Um, and basically, if somebody said you should do this, I'd be like, OK, you know, um, and I and I think like I wasn't happy. I mean, there's no argument that could be made to say that I was a happy person, especially in those post-seminary years. I did work as a pastor for a little while and I did find joy. I, f- I found so much joy in the work I did with artists while I was at seminary. I was a I worked with you know, dancers. I formed groups for dancers to get together to talk about growing up in churches that thought what they did was a sin. And we like sort of had these cathartic conversations and then we found places to put on performances. And And then when I worked as a worship pastor, I loved that more than anything. I was a teacher too. I taught like Joshua to second Kings, which is the least understood part of the Bible. I just thought it was so much fun to teach and people would take this, take it over and over again. And we had fun I had fun with worship teams and choirs and, you know, so I found joy in playing and doing the kinds of things that I enjoyed doing at those times. But I always came home from those times and just collapsed into a heap of just like exhaustion from keeping all of the different parts of me in place enough so that I didn't fall apart in front of people, you know, and I had very, very serious eating disorder issues for most of that time. I was either a toothpick or the opposite, one or the other. So so it was when I did finally leave the church completely just to take a clean slate and just be like, I'm done. My my last church um, that I tried to attend when I started dating my now husband, they basically said, no, you can't date this person. He's not a believer. You can't sing in front of our church anymore. I wasn't, I was mainly just doing worship once in a while with some people. And I was like, you know what? I've had it. I've had it. I have, I don't want any more of this because <laughs> I really did want to learn what it meant to live an integrated life, to be just one person. And um, so when I left, I kind of thought everything was going to be great. You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm free. But the problem is you can't just take something like that out. And I learned what a lot of people now I've heard, I've learned now eight years later that it's called religious trauma syndrome. And I found writers like Jamie Lee Finch um, and some others who write on this. She's a therapist. She has a community called the coven (laughs) and she helps people deal with these issues. I didn't know any of that was out there. So I just went into a cocoon Um, and playgrounding started out of that. 
because I hadn't know what to do. I did, honestly, I did not know what to do. I just completely was just withdrawn from the world. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so, oh, love it. And what was the name of that condition um, that that you had mentioned that you learned later? Um, it's called religious trauma syndrome and it's religious in the DSM five. Yeah. It's, it's a, tra it's a trauma. Like I'd had people over my, most of my life, if they got to know me at all, people mostly from outside of my church, um, a chaplain at Chapman university, amazing woman. I worked with her in other capacities, but she said, I really think you have PTSD. And I just thought it was silly. I was like, I haven't been in any accidents. I haven't been attacked like in that, but she, I, I mean, I had, but I didn't, she didn't know that. But I learned lady that later that CPTSD is is a part of what it feels like. It's a, it's a chronic condition of fight or flight, and you don't feel like you can fight. And I didn't, not in the church. And I didn't feel like I could flee because I never could. Why? How could I? I was a preacher's kid who then was going to become a pastor. So I just sat there and I froze. So I just was frozen um, for all those years. And thus there is trauma and there are consequences in my body, in my mind. Um, so I, it's been an amazing process and just coming through it in this last eight years. Yes. And I, and I feel like that is a, a, a good sort of transit of what was that process like? If you can just sort of take us through of, you know, you first mentioned, you know, that you had to, um, you know, you're, to not, you know, to, to say it's okay that you mm -hmm. didn't have to, you know, attend church. But what else, you know, started showing up? And how did you, because you didn't even know that was a thing, um, but how did you intuitively start to heal? <laughs> well, I I decided to get out of town. I, re I, I realized that all of the choices that I had made that had me in the situation that I was in at that moment were never really choices that I made on purpose. I just kind of ended up places my, my whole life. And I was sitting there in my corporate job in Orange County going for a walk with a girl from work. And she said that she was moving to Long Beach. And I said, oh, why? That's a longer commute. And she said, well, I just want to. I love it there. I want to go live there again. And I was like, you what? You're going to make a choice like that just because you want to. Like, it just sounded so weird to me. But then, like, I went home to my little one bedroom, a beautiful little apartment in Santa Ana with my little granite countertops. And I went, I hate this. I really hate this. And I want to go back to L.A. And I had friends in L.A. Um, and I started hanging out up there more. I put my feelers out and I ended up at the brewery here at the, you know, and surrounded by these crazy people, which I think is the first step for me, which was getting outside of the community I was in that felt just like this closed system and meeting all these new people. And I did finally go with them to Burning Man that first year because they've been asking me since 2003 and I kept saying no. So this year I finally went and I dyed my hair blue, just the tips because I was too scared. I knew I'd have to cut it off immediately when I got home. Um, but man, I never stopped dyeing my hair blue after that. I just was like, it's fun to know I can do other things and meet more people. And suddenly I'm living in a warehouse in Los Angeles with a bunch of people next to the freeway and a train yard. You know, it was like, and it was like these weird decisions that I started making that felt like mine. And so that kind of got me started. It was like, a, it was like following a trail of breadcrumbs of like, let's try moving someplace. Let's try doing this activity that I've never thought I would do. Like, oh my goodness. Then the next thing, you know, yeah. So, so that makes me curious when you were with 
you know, these people that you wouldn't have like <laughs> thought that you would have relationships with. Did you feel like you were getting a glimpse of who you really were with those people? Oh my gosh. Well, honestly, in the beginning, I, I loved being with them, but they also scared the crap out of me. They're Giggsville. They are this community of, of Burning Man that they are not like the ones who are running around in little cute, you know, shorts doing Instagram photos. These are the people who build Burning Man. These are like rough and tumble. We have a on fire car on fire. It's like, and, and, and I had some good friends through Giggsville, so I, I trusted them. Um, but they were also their level of freedom scared me a little bit. Like all I all I thought a lot of the time with a lot of them was like, I'll never be able to be like them. They're mm. so free. They're so, you know, and so, but I also kind of idolize, I put them in a different category. I just thought, well, I'm over here, you know, doing my thing. I'm just going to be here and smile and love and it be entertained and be inspired by them. But I never thought that I could live like that, the way that they were living. And not that I had to make the same choices as them or wear the same clothes as them, but just like be able to be so free as to just blurt out what I was thinking at a given moment. And I was just like, wow, she's so bold, you know? <laughs> and I didn't know the half, you know? I mean, I never thought I'd be able to be like that. I still, have, I, I'm still not there. I'm just still working my way there. <laughs> it's a process. It's a process. Mm -hmm. Yep. They just and, be and themselves. Well, that, yeah. And that like brings me to a, a question, you know, uh, as far as mental health, uh, you had yeah. mentioned that, um, you know, when you were going through your situation, you know, you were having a number of mental health, um, you know, issues. Mm -hmm. um, can you help us understand how spiritual spirituality and mental health mm -hmm. are related, especially in your situation? Um, in my situation, what I what I started. Oh, wow. It just like my eating disorder was the most obvious thing. Anxiety. And was the main other thing. Generalized anxiety disorder was the first thing that I had to really come in contact with. Um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy helped me a lot. It, it had really practical exercises, things I could work through. But I didn't learn it until later. I actually bought this book about it because I couldn't get in to see a therapist very much at Kaiser. You get you see someone every like six weeks. And so you like talk for 45 minutes about whatever, and then you don't see them for six weeks. It doesn't really work. So I bought this book called You Are Not Your Brain by Jeffrey Schwartz. And he was a doctor, you know, he writes and it's, it's, I love this book so much. I don't know why it's not like, you know, but he talked about this thing called the wise advocate. So when you're doing, when you're doing CBT and I love like meditation with rain. So you, you have the voices in your head, the really naughty, the really angry ones, the the ones that just never, you can, you can never do anything right. I called her my mean boss voice in the eating disorder land. We called it the eating disorder voice, the ED voice. Um, the one that's constantly criticizing you for everything that reminds you how much calories are in everything, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I started to, to uh, Jeffrey Schwartz's, you know, said this, imagine now you have this wise advocate and you go through your process of your CBT stuff, which he didn't call it that. You go through this process of asking these questions of yourself. And then you just imagine that there's this character, this wise advocate who loves you beyond like someone like if <sighs> they love you more than you love yourself. It could be a religious figure. It could be a parent, anything. And as I started to develop what that meant, because there were just there was baggage around every religious thing in my life. There was baggage around everything. I, I didn't know how to use a, a, a image of somebody that actually existed or like a religious thing. So I had, I used a picture of the, the childlike empress from the never ending story. 
because I didn't have any religious association with this, this, but I, in my head, that was, you know, and she just had my best interest at heart. And she would know in any given situation, ways to tell me to have compassion on myself that I didn't, but I was making it up. So I was having self-compassion through this wise advocate figure. And it started me having inner dialogues again, because I didn't feel like I could really pray. And, and so then I started thinking that all of these amazing things I learned through intuitive eating, which is a very specific way to handle eating disorders, which is to help you remember that. Um, so my, my mental health process, CBT, and then also this eating disorder work was so important. And the eating disorder work was what led me to where I am exactly right now. And that is that for the first little while, well, first I read the book. It's an amazing book um, called Eating Intu Intuitive Eating. And I can't remember the authors right now, but I'll post it on the show notes. But that I, I wrote down everything that I felt hungry for. I wrote down what I was in the mood for. I said, do you think this is hunger or a craving? And I'd be like, mm, I don't know. Then you write down what you ate. And then you write down afterwards, are you full? Are you too full? Or do you feel like you're not eating enough? And it was a weird process to go through because it sounds really weird. Way harder than counting calories because it actually requires reflection. And then I started to realize that I was listening to my body. And I know that might sound weird for people who do this all the time. You know, little babies know how to say no when they've had enough. And, um, but I started to think maybe if I could listen to more of what's happening in me, maybe if I could see, do I want to do something or not? And if I don't, but I'm still doing it, why, you know, do I, can I figure out when it makes sense to, and when it doesn't like, and it, once I really started doing that work and I was journaling pretty much every day, I started developing this relationship to myself and I realized that I never really allowed myself to become a part of the process of whether or not I believed anything in the world of religion or spirituality. I was basically told, here are the things we believe and you're a part of this community. And I never really felt like I had a lot of say. And I was one of those people in seminary and in college that I always was asking questions and I didn't feel, I felt like that was what always got me in trouble. Always, 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 always. But I'm the kind of person who asks questions always. And so for me to just start thinking toward along the lines of, I get to not only ask questions, but I get to be an active participant in what kind of conversations go on inside my head. Because most of the time, those voices were, were replicants of voices telling me all the shoulds, you know, that I can, I can have a very, I can have a direct line to how I imagine God, how I experience God, how, if there is a God. I mean, I went through a period of like, I just don't want any of it at all. Um, and, and so I finally allowed myself to play with it. And I, and I kind of compare it to like, wonder came back for me when I started doing that inner work. And like when a little kid sees, like a little baby sees a big red ball and their eyes light up, they don't know what that is. So they'll poke it, they'll poke, you know, is it heavy or light? Is it, does it bounce? Does it roll? Does it, you know, what, what is this thing? You know, but, but ba that baby's asking questions of that ball, really, when it really comes down to it. It's, it, it strikes their wonder and then they look at it and they're like, oh. So what I think is that, <laughs> Essentially, when we grow up, when we find something exciting and we have wonder, a lot of times we just get shut down. It's like that baby seeing the ball and then it being slapped away from like, no, don't touch it. Don't touch it. 
you know, I'll tell you that this ball is squishy or, or not. I'll tell you if it bounces, but leave it alone. You know, I got to have ideas about God and I got to touch God, bounce God. Does God roll? Does that, you know, I finally got the chance to really like just experience wonder and then actually interact with it. And I think that that is a, as much an, a definition of play as anything I've ever heard. I love that. And it reminds <laughs> me of the book, um, The Wonder Switch um, by a Ooh. gentleman. His name is Harris III. An amazing book. And in that book, he talks about we are all born with our wonder switch on. Ooh. And something happens that turns that wonder switch off and is usually... Um, a traumatic event or, or, you know, just over time, just being conditioned to be an adult mm -hmm. and we are left numb yeah, <laughs> and we're sort so, of yeah. walking through life. And, um, and in the book, he talks about like how you can turn that wonder switch back on. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it seems like these, uh, you know, these things that you were, you know, jumping into, um, you know, from the various types of uh, therapy that you're going through mm -hmm. and these new interactions with people, you know, sort of helped you reignite that. Would you yeah. would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The wonder switch came back on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's an amazing and, feeling. And uh, you have this you have this on your site and, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about this and align it to your your mm -hmm. story about the metalude. Oh, mother. I, I, this whole thing, I, I got myself a little, just, yeah, I can't believe I didn't jump straight to that because that is literally like my heart. <laughs> well, that's my, my job as the Thank interviewer you. to guide you on that process. <laughs> I got so you. <laughs> I so got weird. you. Um, yeah. So the metalude is, and I got, I went to the, the world, uh, the U.S. Play Coalition's conference years ago and a gentleman named Gregory Manley was giving a talk on play for adults and he was, using the play cycle for children and they said this isn't exactly the same for adults this is called the metalude when the kid runs out when the kid the bell goes off and they are done and they put their pencils down and they're like it's time for recess and he's like adults have a hard time making that transition you know and I really I could never let that go I could never stop thinking about that like when I get done at five o'clock my brain doesn't switch off my my brain, when does my brain ever switch to a point where I'm going, hmm, what do I want to do now that I'm free to do whatever I want? Because I never feel like that ever. Like I, that, I, I don't remember the last time before I started playing like I do now, but I feel like the metalude, the, the definition of it is the inner reverie that precedes play. Like when you tell a kid that they get to play they are just going to start down the list of things that they've been thinking about doing as soon as they were done with their chores and they're going to go do them. But in that moment, there's a moment before they, they even really start deciding what they want to do where they're like, oh, I get to play now. And I think, you know, I don't have kids, but I, but when I'm around kids and I see that, it just makes me so happy. I want that feeling. And it is, it is an intuitive feeling. It's a feeling of listening to yourself, of giving your, that inner child, that, that, part of you that longs to just express yourself to to play and do things it's giving that that giving yourself that permission is so hard it's so hard um and there's a reason why that part isn't often included in the adult play cycle if there really is one I there are so many different ideas and versions around it but 
I feel like that's the number one thing is if we can't figure out how to flip that switch, maybe the wonder switch is exactly it. I haven't, I have to read this book, but that's what it is, is I feel like the metalude is the wonder switch from what you just said. Um, when do we get to turn that on? When we get done with work, we're on to the personal list of things we have to do. And if we're late or not, and what's going to be for dinner and, you know, if we never stop that process and then it, we, we even bypass it by numbing ourselves instead of playing, you know, sorry, I could go on and on, but <laughs> yes, it's all good. Well, can you think of any moments, especially when you were, you know, starting your healing journey where you had some, some like maybe glimpses where you were just so lost in the moment? Oof. I had such a hard time getting lost in the moment. Probably, and this is going to sound so cliche, but my first Burning Man was really, I was forced into it because I was still in my corporate job and I just, I would never have put my phone down for anything, but I was out of range for a week in the dust. <laughs> and I do remember getting on a bicycle and drive and, and going out into the middle of the playa for the first time by myself and just writing and writing and knowing that no one could reach me and knowing that I could turn off my phone anytime I want, but I don't. Why do I do that? I started kind of asking myself questions like I could have this anywhere, anytime if I really, you know, that was the first time I think I just, I gave up trying to fight it because I fought it a lot getting there. I kept looking for a signal. <laughs> You know, um, so you surrendered. Yeah. I surrendered. Well, there you have no choice. At least you used to not have a choice. Now there's you can get a signal there if you really try. But I don't want one. <laughs> I And now if I have a signal and I decide not to listen to it, I just turn it off and it. I can have that back anytime I want. That wasn't I, I had to be forced into it or I had to wait for someone to give me permission. Now I know how to give myself permission. But I remember what that felt like to get on that bicycle. And I wanted to go, I wanted to aim for the spot in the horizon that had nothing in it. I just wanted to go and I did. And it was a wonderful so, day. So paint the picture for us um, because I can <laughs> hear it in your voice. I know it like it's pure bliss and joy, uh -huh. uh, but take us on that journey of like the initial frustration mm -hmm. to the point hitting that block or that wall and to the <laughs> point of going past that. I, I look at it like in, in Harry Potter of... Uh, you know, we see the wall like, you know, um, uh, nine and three quarters mm -hmm. and it yeah. looks solid. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going up to it and you're like, what's going to happen? And then going through it and it's so freeing where you're on the other side and it's magical. So take on that journey for you. Um, I think I, I would love the idea of it being a thing that happened quickly. I love the idea of like, I went on that bicycle ride and I was suddenly I came back and I was just the sassy, you know, girl that I always wanted to be. But that was like entering the, that, that took me, that got me into the game before the, the resistance I felt to all of that, going to the playa, knowing that at some point I'm going to lose touch with my boss, um, trying to go through my head of all the things that I, I'd never been away from my job for that long. Um, also I just felt like I was responsible for the whole world all the time. Um, and so it was exciting to, to do something like that. Doing it felt exhilarating, but as, um, 
as Ani DeFranco says in one of my favorite songs, um, jumping is easy, falling is fun, right up till you hit the sidewalk, shivering and stunned. That I was, I came back to the world after all of that. And I realized I had a lot of work to do. Because when you take something, my, my, someone said to me, when you uproot a tree, what do you have left? And I'm like, no tree. They're like, no, a hole. <laughs> you can't just uproot a tree. There's like a giant hole left behind. And I, and a lot of the things that I depended on up here in my head, all of those systems were gone. And after that experience, after the burn, after I went into deep, deep, deep anxiety and I tried to drink it away, I tried to like, I didn't know what it was. It just felt like snow on TV, which kids today would only know is the thing that comes before every HBO show. Uh, you know, it just felt like this, like in my head. And so then I had to go about the, the very you can't just snap your fingers or take a pill and make that stuff go away. And I had to start the painful process of untangling that noise. And I did piece by piece. CBT worked really well. The eating disorder, it's like going through all those processes. And then when I did come back to the door of spirituality again and say, I think I want back in, I'm going to use the tools I've learned from, from play. And I have to say, part of my anxiety was social anxiety. And one of my biggest regrets is that after my second year of playgrounding, I went through this period of utter terror of other people. <laughs> and I have some guests on this show that inspired me so much that I couldn't do it anymore. I just felt, I, and I couldn't, I couldn't explain it to this day. There's no logic to it, but I was scared of them. I was scared of the show. I went offline for two years. I didn't tell anyone. I just disappeared. And I, I don't know how to explain it. So I'm just going to say it now. Like I, I am so embarrassed of that still that I did that. And I could never really come up with a good explanation. And there really isn't one other than I just had some massive issues to deal with. But like, but every day I had to figure it out. Every day I had to choose something every day. And there are months that go by where I choose not to play because I choose my anxiety. I'm like, oh, nope, I get to I get to choose. That's the thing I keep coming back to. Oh, no, no, no. I get to choose. You know, I don't have to entertain this anxiety. I get to try something else. And, and when I before I would come back to playgrounding, the, the, the one thing I had in mind was that I'm not going to just interview people that, to tell me inspiring stories of how they play. I'm going to have people on and I'm always going to ask them, how do I get there? Because when I, the first two years of playgrounding, I was just like, you're cool. You can play. Look how awesome you are. And they, and that's awesome. I'm, and I, they, they are awesome people, every single one of them. But I'm like, you know what? I want more. I want to be one of them. And that was a whole nother ball game. And when I started up back in May, the first person I interviewed was someone who's a play therapist playful therapist you know and I'm like this is the kind of stuff I want to be doing and so meeting you meeting Jeff Harry meeting all I mean you have no idea how inspiring you all have been for me getting to where I'm at right now and I feel so honored and privileged to be able to tell you my story which I'm probably gonna have to edit a lot but <laughs> It's Thank all you. good. And, and I yeah. just have a few more questions for you okay. uh, because this is like so good. Uh, and, and, and maybe maybe you can <laughs> put it into two episodes yeah. uh, because this is like so amazing. Uh, the, the, you know, the question is, is this. Um, you're right. Like it, it's, a, it's a challenge and, and mm -hmm. you have this hole. Um, if, if there is someone that uh, is realizing they have. A hole, mm hmm. How can they, how can they fill it and, and how can they start to like 
you start to trust himself again. Um, if it's if it's if this whole is happening because you had to leave a community, the hardest thing to do is to trust the community again. I, I found that I did enjoy meeting all of those new, new people, but I'm still to this day dealing with my lack of trust for for people. Um, not because of anything they do. It's just I after being shunned, after being judged in the ways that, you know, but I think like what I finally, so I didn't want to talk about the sexual assault stuff. I went all the way through me to got like two years into it and didn't even think about it relating to myself. Um, finally, when I did finally occurred to me, maybe I should figure out if maybe all this church stuff had something to do with how I handled my sexual assaults and my rapes. And I Finally, even though I knew there was a huge amount of work being done, I ignored it because I didn't want to think about it. I found communities of people writing about purity culture. I found that the guy who wrote Kiss Dating Goodbye had done a total 180 and said, you know, I think I messed up and I need to come back and, and deal with some of the mess that I've helped create. I found writers. I found Jamie Lee Finch, the woman who created this community. Her her services were so needed that she felt like she had to start this online community because she didn't have enough time to, to help all the people who came for her, came to her. So that kind of community of people, not even not even even interacting with them much yet. You know, I'm still like barely, barely getting to the point where I'm really getting to know any of them. But knowing they're out there, like the first thing was that I felt so alone. And I felt like I was the only one who felt all these things. And everyone has a different story and a different reason why you feel so cut off. If you feel like you have that hole, there's a reason for it. Guaranteed, you're not going to be the only one on the planet. And because my thing was so, my, my whole life was about drawing boundaries and, and being quiet and not allowing anyone to know what was happening inside of me. It was like a life or death struggle to keep it all under wraps and keep the good face up. That led me to being quiet for way too long. It took me till my 40s to go, oh, so other kids grew up thinking that their bodies were this horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And that your body is only gonna make, make you go to hell and blah, 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 blah. You know, like that, that's, there are so many women now that I know that I follow and social media, I read, I, and, and I'm starting to actually develop some friendships with them, but just knowing they're out there makes it easier for me to accept myself to go look at how these women are talking, you know, look at how these men are talking. These people are being so honest. I'm on subreddits of these people. I'm on different places where sometimes I'm just a lurker, but I'm like, wow, look how many other people have been through this and they're doing great. And maybe they don't even feel like they're doing great, but I do. So I'll like chime in sometimes and get super excited. And, you know, so knowing you're not alone, I think is the first most important step. And, 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 and that's helped me learn to, like when you offered to let to do this and I was way too scared to say yes. And it allows me to take offers again because play isn't for me, play has been very just like be, me by myself, but I'm learning how to play with others now. And it's kind of weird that it's taken me this long, <laughs> but I'm doing it, you know? I, I said yes, yes to doing this, which I meant I had to write you and be like, did you mean that? Can we do it? And I was like, ah! you know, it was super scary. But like that, me doing that was such a huge thing, like in the grand scheme that I was, that I actually felt like I could. 
Um, so I'm still working through all of this and I want to be like, that's why my, my calling now is not like to be a pastor or to be a chaplain. My calling now is to be someone that anyone can reach out to Kara at playgrounding.com. If you feel like you can't talk to anybody else, if you feel like you're trapped inside your own head and that everyone's going to hate you if they found out what you really think, please, please just write me and I will write you back. I mean, this is what I want to do with my life is I want to help other people find that inner voice of, of wisdom and compassion, that inner wise advocate. Um, and if you don't have anyone or even I any idea of what that might be like, then let me do it for you for a while. You know, that's what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> and that is like the perfect bow on there of <laughs> you bringing it back home of <laughs> all, you know, uh, all of that. Um, and, and I love how you, like it's something bigger, mm -hmm. um, you know, what you're calling is, is something bigger, um, because I feel like, um, you know, we, we know what we want and we see it, but to unpack and really understand what it really means, mm -hmm. because when you're tested, you know, uh, a lot of times because your identity is tied to that and it's, and when you see it's not cracked up to be like it, your trust waivers I feel like at the end of the day, the Kara back when that's what she really wanted, but she didn't have for that. She didn't have, you know, all that she saw was, Oh, preacher. Mm -hmm. He did that. And yeah. then the, everything that was into that. And so you, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate. And, and I, I, I like to look at the, um, the Phoenix of, mm. you know, the, the Phoenix that, you know, that the burned and, and from the ashes rise up and it's something new. Mm -hmm. And, um, and maybe this is just me being super, uh, a person that is extremely, um, uh, positive and optimistic about everything is that <laughs> it, like, it's so unfortunate, all the stuff that you had to go through. Um, and you know, of course no one would wish that upon anyone, but the beauty of it at the, end of the day, it, it taught you, um, you know, like you learn lessons that hopefully you're going to help other people not have to deal with. That's what I want. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to sign up for the Playful Rebellion Challenge at BreakthroughPlay.com slash Playful Rebellion. And you will also need to include that coupon code CHALLENGE100 to get it for free. Next week, you'll hear how play can help reframe dementia for both patients and their loved ones. You're not going to want to miss this. I'll see you then.